The Jewish disciples of Jesus who wrote the New Testament had a Jewish apocalyptic worldview. They expected this age to end and a totally new age to begin. They expected the entire world to be transformed when the Messiah returned and gathered the exiles of Israel back to the land of Israel. But for most of church history, this apocalyptic worldview was lost. We're back with the second half of our conversation with Bill, John, and Josh from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast, and we're going to be taking a look at the apocalyptic Jewish context behind some of your favorite Bible concepts. Put your hand and mind together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast. I'm Stephanie Hammond, and I'm here with Jacob Franzak. How are you doing today, Jacob? I'm all hopped up on caffeine and ready to go, Steph. Oh, good. Well, I've I've had my caffeine for the day, probably not as much as you have, but you know what? The sun's shining and I'm ready to go. The chickens are out, the the plants are coming up. I'm I'm pretty happy about where things are today. Nice. Well, it's pretty rare for us to have the same guest two episodes in a row. Yeah, we should probably clarify for our listeners that we did not kidnap the hosts of the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast so we could repeatedly <laughs> milk them for endless content. Um, as we, much as as much as we wanted to, yeah. you know. Just like. um, our conversation with Bill, Josh, and John lasted for over two hours. So we thought instead of skimming the cream and making some butter, uh, <laughs> we would just give you all we've got and put it all out there in two episodes. Now, in case someone is just tuning in, remind us again who these guys are. So the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast is helmed by a pastor, a campus minister, and a missionary, and their goal is to explain the New Testament in its original context, which is a Jewish apocalyptic context. And can you break that down for some of our listeners who are might be tuning in for the first time? Yeah, yeah. So apocalypticism is, generally speaking, the belief that God is going to radically transform the world. This era, this period of time, will have a definite end, and a new era will begin. And that era is the Messianic era, and it's going to be completely different. Um, But it's not like everybody leaves and goes to heaven. All of it happens here on earth, which is a big shift from the sort of traditional Mm -hmm. Christian idea that it's all about going to heaven after you die, which is, I guess, um, why, why our conversation was so long. Absolutely. And this second half is where we're going to dig into some of the more theologically dense material. So if you're wondering about ideas like election and ecclesiology, we're going to be touching on some of those topics and many more coming up on Messiah Podcast. You didn't grow up with a Jewish apocalyptic context when you were reading the New Testament. And somehow, like all three of you... Mm have come to this understanding that, and maybe this answer will be different for the three of you, but how did you get to where you are now? Like, when did it click for you? So I think for me, it was studying the Gospels. It was actually getting into the life of Jesus, uh, trying to figure out what he said. It was kind of more initially focused on a uh, the idea that, man, I need to know God and I need to know what Jesus taught. And if I'm going to be his disciple and his follower, I need to know him. And, you know, I'd sing the worship songs growing up and Lord, I want to know you. I want to love you. But I realized that without 
a real depth of knowledge of who he was and what he said in the context of what he said uh, and and what he did. I couldn't really know him to the extent that I was wanting to. And so it really led me into a study of the Gospels. Uh, and, and one of the, the most profound resources for me growing up uh, into this was Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, uh, classic work. And that led me into going, okay, well, what else did Edersheim write? Uh, and, you know, his big work on the temple, uh, its ministry and services. And and that really led me down the road into going, okay, I want to understand Jesus in his original context and who he was speaking to. And that then led me into historical studies. And historical studies, of course, you know, is a minefield. Uh, <laughs> and then historical studies, you just go, wow, okay, so this is how they understood things. Okay, then what does that mean for me today? A lot of the Christian world will start at saying, okay, well, here's how we should understand Jesus because this is how Calvin or Luther understood Jesus, or this is how Augustine understood Jesus. When you go and you say, okay, how did a first century Jew understand Jesus? And what do we know from first century history? So of course, that led me into like looking at Josephus. Uh, and then you get into historical scholarship where, you know, the world just opens up with Paula Fredrickson and Mark Nanos and, you know, other Jewish scholars. And so that's really a little bit of my journey into it. It was really just, it, it started with the gospels and started with, okay, I want to know Jesus, but that means I need to know him in his historical context. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> I was just going to say, it reminded me of when I was an undergrad, uh, I signed up for a class called Teachings of Jesus. And this is at this college, you uh, you had to go to the teacher and sign up for the class. And, the, and it's, uh, this guy, Dr. Troutman, was like, it's about time. And I said, what? He's like, how can you be Christian if you don't know the teachings of Jesus? And I thought about it for a second. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess that I've just, you know, it's all it's been all Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. Maybe I should learn the teachings of Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, it was it was seminary 20 years ago. I went to an evangelical seminary, so all I heard was one side of the conversation. I just heard the evangelical scholars saying Jesus and the apostles changed all of this, these Jewish apocalyptic ideas, but we never learned what the Jewish apocalyptic ideas actually were. We never studied Second Temple literature. We never read the historical scholars. All we read were the guys arguing against it and arguing for this new revolutionary teaching of Jesus. And, and I, so throughout seminary, I was just like, this just doesn't make any sense. I don't, you know, I had some pretty heated conversations with, with professors. And then in the years kind of following seminary, just working through, I was like, no, I, I don't think that's what's happening. I, I don't think there's a radical change of worldview or narrative you know, for example, like N.T. Wright was nigh unto deity at the seminary where I went to, and he came and spoke a couple times. And so his main push is that Jesus and the apostles reimagined or re-narrated or reworked or redefined. He likes to use re-words. He redefined all of the Jewish apocalyptic expectations and around these novelties. And I just remember just kind of systematically after seminary going, I don't think so. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. And Josh and Bill and I kind of did it together in those years in the, you know, in the mid uh, late two thousands is when we really connected together, talking through all of the ideas. And by the early 2010s, I would say about 10 years ago, 
we were kind of by that point all on the same page as where we are now. Over the last 10 years, I think we've all experienced in our own way the tempering by fire of response that <laughs> that you get when you start saying these things. So, Yeah, similar story for me. I can't really pit it on a moment. It was really just kind of over time. Two things. Paul felt inconsistent to me uh, the way I was raised to read Paul. For me, actually, looking back, it was a question of New Testament priority that really made me go, this doesn't logically make any sense. And so that's when I kind of hit a pause button and I just went back and I started reading from the Antinocene fathers and going back, getting to, you know, Jewish literature of the first century or, you know, the, you know, prior to the first century. And, and just because logically saying that Paul is a Jew thinks that his writing is going to supersede the context of the psalm that he's quoting and that his definition is going to trump that just didn't make any sense. But then to have the entire theology of the New Testament rest on that idea, did it just less and less, I, I just couldn't swallow it. So so I basically said, you know, going back through the literature, especially when I got to Second Temple literature and started reading some of that material, going, well, okay, let's read through the Bible as though what, what is most logical anyways, that the authors of the New Testament assumed the context of the Old Testament when they when they cited those passages, and let's see what we end up with. And it actually, you know, that things just kind of fell in place. It's not that there aren't messy passages, but once you start to understand some of the complexities within the Greco-Roman world, some of the diversity that existed in Judaism at the time, then it just kind of started to fall in place. And a heck of a lot of the grace of God, for sure. I don't want to leave that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> appreciate you guys sharing your stories and how you arrived to this place. Before we talk a little bit about the implications of <laughs> everything we discussed so far, what we all believe, I just wanted to touch on one more thing. It can be sort of a stumbling block for a lot of people, the idea of election, which of course shows up now and then in Paul's epistles, whichever way you want to interpret it, of course. But in Christianity, this usually means that God has predestined some people to go to heaven when they die. In stricter frameworks like Calvinism, of course, you even get the double predestination idea where God's created most people having already predestined them to eternal punishment. So focusing more on the negative there. And people obviously go back and forth on this. When I was at Moody, yeah, right. this was like the point of contention <laughs> across the board. I went I went to the center of the free will universe at Asbury. We had a life-size statue of John Wesley. <laughs> Different ends of the spectrum there. but um, Wesley's my boy. I came out with more questions than answers, but that's another that's another episode. Would you guys just tell us a little bit about election in the Jewish apocalyptic context as you see it? I think uh, the best place to start with that, of course, is to start in the Tanakh, to start with Abraham and then move forward to Israel. That election isn't necessarily about, again, really kind of going back to something John said, it isn't necessarily putting it into the Greek narrative or the Roman narrative, it's putting it into a Jewish narrative. An election or chosenness, as often is said in the Jewish world, is about God choosing Abraham or the descendants of Abraham for a role, as opposed to a destination. It's about God choosing for a role or for a purpose. And so as, oppo as opposed to some kind of um, philosophical wrestling, I think, Bill and John, you would agree, we would just see it continuing throughout the same way that it was understood throughout the Tanakh. 
that Paul, when he begins talking about election, I mean, something even massively important when, when you read Ephesians 1, like to look at the pronouns, there's the we and us, the we and us, and then verse 13 in Ephesians 1, you get the y'all, like I, I think as, as a, uh, as someone who lives in Texas here, I'm not a native Texan, but as someone who <laughs> lives in Texas, I think it'd be super helpful to have a Texan or Southern translation of the scriptures that would have plural use in there, right? To be able to help readers, English readers understand the pronouns and things going on better. But oftentimes those passages in the New Testament that are used to support a more anachronistic kind of Calvinistic or reformed Christian reading of, of those scriptures and the idea of election really should be taken within its Jewish context uh, in God electing or choosing the descendants of Abraham for a role in the larger story of redemption. And so I think if you begin there, that really changes the tone of the conversation where a lot of people don't, a lot of Christians that I've met, especially here in the South where Calvinism is, you know, nice and popular among all the Baptists here, you know, they assume that the Old Testament or the talk is just background to Jesus and the real story of redemption. And so the real story is about something bigger. It's about, you know, a changed Jewish narrative, a spiritualized whatever. And then all of a sudden, well, now there's this new concept introduced by Paul called Calvinism and election is seen in that as opposed to the unchanged Jewish narrative that has God selecting the descendants of Abraham for a role in the story of redemption. That's probably the best way uh, to describe it in the simple terms as we would see it looking at uh, the the unchanged Jewish narrative. The problem is, is that the, the thought world between first century Judaism and 16th, 17th century Gentile Europe is it's there's a lot of distance there <laughs> right one of the main things that is different is the focus and so jewish apocalyptic thought is very eschatologically oriented it's focused on the end it's focused on the day of the lord the resurrection the age to come thus it tends towards a focus on soteriology a focus on salvation which is always presumed to be from the wrath to come, from the day of wrath, the day of judgment, etc. And so first century Judaism is very soteriologically oriented, meaning it's real focused on like functional, like salvation type of stuff. Whereas once you change the narrative in the third, fourth century moving forward, you have a much more heavy emphasis on what's called ontology, the study of being, uh, because the universe is split in two and it's all about the ideal forms, not the corrupt manifest copies, etc., whatever. And so an analogy of this that I use is if my kid is rebellious in the middle of winter in a snowstorm and I have to kick him out of my house because it's endangering the other, you know, my other kids, his focus is not primarily on my ontology how tall I am, what color my eyes are, <laughs> how much I weigh. His focus is on soteriology. How do I not die in the snow right now? His focus is on the, the function like Josh is talking about. Once the focus moves away from soteriology and Jewish apocalyptic thought to a more ontological focus, then when you're talking about divine foreknowledge – which is what the debate between Calvin and Arminius is about, is divine foreknowledge of the future. Is it historical or is it causative? And Arminius said it's historical. Calvin 
and Beza and the and the school there said it's causative, and they killed each other over it. I just don't think first century Jews that's the focus. They had ideas about divine foreknowledge, but the choosing and God having defined foreknowledge in Romans nine and even causing things to happen like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is still within the primary soteriological focus that even though God has chosen to harden the Jews in this season, like he hardened Pharaoh's heart, doesn't mean the redemptive narrative has changed and doesn't mean that all Israel is not going to be saved. The conversation that Romans 9 through 11 happens within is still a Jewish apocalyptic narrative, a a Jewish apocalyptic conversation, that that divine foreknowledge and that discussion of causation that's happening, particularly in chapter 9, is in context to the, the primary focus of soteriology, if that makes sense. But when you extract that out of the focus on soteriology and the fo- and the Jewish apocalyptic conversation, then you get this weird obsessive focus on divine ontology and divine foreknowledge and what is it and how does it work and how does it relate to our synergy, our decision, our will, all of that stuff. It's just not a conversation first century Jews are having. No, definitely not. So practically speaking, now that we have gone through all these definitions and wrestled with these issues, how would the apocalyptic gospel change the way that the church looks today? Is this just a theological shift or are there some real concrete changes in store? What's the end goal? You know, I had a conversation with someone yesterday where something was said and they said something like, you know, you need to you need to act out your faith. And I said, no, no, that's not true. You, you do act out your faith. Everyone acts out their faith. That's the problem. Mm. <laughs> that's what we have in the world is everybody's acting out what they believe to be true and the degree to which they believe those things to be true. Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, no, so this is a little unfair. So we've been talking about the, the, the Christian movement historically. So talking about it in a contemporary context, especially in the West, I have a missionary friend who jokingly but lovingly calls American Christianity the uh, Jesus Appreciation Club. And and that is very it's very accurate. And so so basically what what happens with realized eschatology because that's what we're talking about. The difference is realized eschatology. And apocalyptic gospels a little bit of a fancy way to say it, but we're we're essentially just saying strip away realized eschatology from the narrative. Yeah. Now, for the sake of our listeners who don't know um, what we mean when we say realized eschatology, this is the idea that Jesus has already fulfilled all the Old Testament promises. Like everything was finished on the cross, and we are currently supposedly living in the abundance of all the goodness of the of those promises right now. Yeah. Modern Christianity is more and more, and it doesn't depend anymore on the denomination viewing God and viewing the gospel in terms of spiritual entitlements. This is just death for faith. You know, realized eschatology creates a sense of spiritual entitlement. So disciples come to the Lord with sincerity, and then they're essentially trained to have certain expectations on the basis of realized eschatology, that the things that the prophets talked about have already happened inside of you. 
So this is how you can expect life to unfold. And, you know, some movements obviously are going to take that to be more in context to material wealth and some in context to spiritual wealth. But but the fact is, losing the ability to accept the grace of God or the giving of the Holy Spirit or those things in context to the narrative and hope for the future as something that God granted to strengthen your faith and hope in what's to come so that you don't lose heart, simply restoring that to a disciple or giving that to a young disciple changes everything. Western church has to be full of programs and and discipleship this and 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 all of these things to try to keep everybody from falling apart at the seams. But the gospel is its own discipleship mechanism. The gospel, if you can just open up the scriptures and understand what it's saying, it is its own discipleship mechanism. It it actually has the ability to hold you and keep you, to sustain you in accountability to keep you before God, walking in the fear of God. And so I think practically what it does is it keeps the prize in the future, like in the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus would just say, what kind of a dummy tries to get his reward right (laughs) now that's going to perish in the next 50 or 60 years at best? Exactly. Only a dummy would do that, right? And that's like the entire Western Christian movement. But it's like, no, if you're smart, easy, easy. You, you receive your reward in the age to come. And so just training disciples in that, I don't know if it's going to change the church. I don't know if I have that much of an expectation, but on a discipleship level, discipleship is radically transformed. If you just, I have, I have the, the great opportunity to work with a handful of brand new, brand new disciples right now fresh out of full paganism which is rare in the US but what's awesome is you just give them the narrative and you just say okay this is what the gospel is here's the bible and they're just all the time my my phone's lighting up going oh my gosh this just makes so much sense now i just i i i learned how to grow in the grace of god and wait for wait for the redemption and and it just makes sense to them they're not it's the concern isn't how do i how do i manipulate god and the scriptures to live my best life now and then how do i deal with the disappointment when that doesn't take place it's simply like how do i learn how to live in a way that's pleasing to god and and wait for the redemption and so i think just practically discipleship takes on that feel a lot more in a general sense once you remove realized eschatology from the equation Yeah. And I think, you know, theologically, the primary thing that changes is the end game focuses on the return of Jesus. So everybody is discipled according to whatever their end is. The problem is, is that the eschatology or the end game for most uh, believers in the West is actually the American dream. For some people, it's the Greek eschatology of the eternal sing-along on the clouds, But for most people, it's actually the American dream is their eschatology. And then they disciple the pastors, the teachers. They disciple the congregations in good principles of accomplishing or attaining the American dream. And so the change of focus and the change of narrative to the Jewish apocalyptic hope changes the end game and people begin to live for eternal life and the return of Jesus, and that reward instead of the American dream 
eschatology or the eternal sing-along, Greek eschatology. And then that plays out as far as praxis, as far as, you know, practical discipleship, that you don't live to attain a lot of possessions in this life. That's why the early church for the first couple hundred years didn't build buildings. Because what's the point if Jesus is returning with angels and fire? So let's focus on internalizing the gospel, living righteously, and seeing the fullness of the Gentiles come in to be saved from the wrath to come. Like I think of 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says, They report to us concerning you the kind of reception we had, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the focus on the return of Jesus and seeing people delivered from the wrath to come and living our lives in light of that meaning living our lives for the mission of God, seeing the fullness of the Gentiles and not hoarding up stuff and laying down our lives, ultimately in a theology of martyrdom, right? Nobody talks about martyrdom. It's not an idealized thing within the church today like it was within the early church because we're separated from the apocalyptic narrative. We're separated from the two ages and this age isn't worth anything ultimately, What's ultimately worth it is the age to come and the return of Jesus. So it plays out in a lack of a theology of martyrdom within the church. And so I think those are kind of some of the main things that uh, are the are the playing out of embracing the apocalyptic narrative. Yeah, John, really, really good. I think just coming off of what you and Bill said, the phrase that we've been using on our show really for the past four seasons is eschatology drives discipleship. Eschatology is the engine that causes people to go, okay, Hmm. this is the way I should live. This is the way I should behave. This is what my mission should be. This is what I should focus on. It is, and primarily it is, as you're saying, guys, it is first century Jewish apocalyptic eschatology because this is how the Jews in the first century understood and wrote about all of this stuff. And and a passage that comes to mind is Romans 15. And this is, again, Paul writing to a bunch of Gentiles in Rome and, you know, affirming the Jewish narrative and affirming the the promises given to Abraham, ultimately unto, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Then he quotes a bunch of passages from the Tanakh and says in verse 13 of Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I've heard that verse quoted out of the context of verses 8 through 12 before, just like, oh, yeah, like just have joy and peace because Jesus loves you and died for you and stuff. But it's all in context to Paul affirming these passages from the Tanakh about Jewish eschatology and the day of God, the resurrection of the dead, the Gentiles coming up. Isaiah 2 is really going to happen. And he's saying in light of this presumed narrative that you're hearing in the synagogues, live in light of that. And and so as a result, God is going to fill you with the spirit, fill you with joy and peace as you look forward toward that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. So eschatology drives discipleship. This is really why we're doing our show. We really want to put this vision before disciples, Gentiles or Jews and say, hey, (laughs) this is what we should live in light of. And this is uh, a a much better narrative to conform your life to than the American dream eschatology, as you're saying, John. So yeah, really good. I love the apocalyptic gospel. 
putting everything back in context is also something we try to do here at First Bridge Design. And, you know, specifically the stuff you were talking about, like changing our, our, our eschatological thoughts away from the American dream eschatology. Like I hadn't necessarily thought about it in those terms before, but I do get this feeling that there's a lot of Christians in America who think that there's going to be this like seamless transition from like American global dominance to, to Jesus global <laughs> dominance. And, you know, there's going to be a bunch of people shaking hands and turning over the <laughs> nuclear codes and it's just going to be. It happened a hundred years ago with the British too. So it's not, it's common. Yeah. It's a Gentile thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to, to go back to where, yeah, the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. There's not going to be much left of what you can see around you now. The, the day of the Lord is going to really clean the slate here. Um, and to focus on what we're what we're doing in preparation for that that changing of the era, rather than building uh, kingdoms here uh, of uh, stone and Amen. brick and and, yeah. and flesh and blood and and so forth. So I did want to mention that uh, John Harrigan wrote this book. I've got it right here. Well, you can't see this on the podcast, but um, I'm holding it in my hand, and um, I wanted to plug it a little bit here, partly because you know there's just so much in here that's good, just good content. But it's it's you don't always find a book that's like meticulously cited and like holds up the arguments hold up to to rigorous scrutiny, but that also is readable. I remember I had this one class in in seminary where the the professor would like put our assignments through this uh, word frequency analyzer. More than fifty percent of the words had to be words that a normal person would never use, and then no one knows what they mean. Awesome. Like you have to get out of the thesaurus to try to make the thing as opaque as possible. Whereas I always considered it a, a joy to try to make ideas more understandable. So I just went ahead and took the B in the class or whatever, as I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> but this book, "The Gospel of Christ Crucified," is the title of the book, and it's understandable. And not not only is it understandable, but it's full of charts. So you can just like visualize these timelines and the relationships between ideas. And um, I yeah, thought this is Jacob's favorite <laughs> thing about the book, by the way, he's been saying. <laughs> I thought it was tremendous. Well, no, because like it's some of this stuff, it, it's about 10 times easier um, if you just draw it out rather than just painting the picture with words, right? John's a chart master. Well, no, it's it's really just to make up. It's just to make up for the deficit in my ability to write because I'm not a writer. <laughs> and my writing is, is fairly dry and dull. So the charts are more just like pictures to keep people engaged to get to the next couple of pages. That's I'm not being funny. It's it's true. It really is. I wanted to um, talk to you about the chart on page 172, which is the Messianic Administration of Divine Glory in the Age to Come is the title of the chart. And it's essentially where everybody's at in the new era. Christ is at the middle. He's overall, above all, in charge of everybody. And then the, there's concentric circles moving out. So outside of Christ, you have the temple. The next concentric circle out is Jerusalem. And the next one out is Israel. This is the Isaiah 2. Um, the temple is at the highest place. Right. And then in Jerusalem and Israel. Um, and this is like the the, the Messianic kingdom, the Jewish, the Jewish eschatological expectation hopes of, of national redemption and so forth. But then outside of Israel, you've got the Goyim. You've got all, all the nations mm -hmm. because of course, again, in Isaiah 2, all the nations are coming to Israel to climb the mountain and ask for advice or whatever, to settle disputes and hear the teaching uh, of the Messiah. 
But it got me thinking because first of all, this chart is very, very similar to a chart we thought we invented called <laughs> Proleptic Radial Ecclesiology, where Christ is at the middle. I love that title, by the way. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. But it's very, <laughs> very similar in the sense that it's Christ is in the middle and it's Israel and then the nations outside of that. But your chart got me wondering, what about Gentiles who are now, who are right now disciples? Because we know that the, the, the 12 apostles will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes. And so that all of the Jewish part of it, the part in within Israel looks pretty clear. And then, of course, the nations are not part of Israel. But then there's there's those of us who have who have we 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 found a Jew and we grabbed on uh, for dear life and we've become like Talmudim, which is you're not really you know that's weird for a Gentile to be a Talmud to be a disciple mm. in the the Messianic era or the, the this uh, the coming age the age to come. Are we just kicked back out into whatever country we came from? Like good job. Um, or do we get, do we get a do, do we commute to a nice desk in, in Jerusalem or, or, or like uh, you know what does it look like for a disciple in in that in the future age? Yeah, I mean, I think the age to come will be an age of perpetual renewal and regeneration of the heavens and the earth, life giving birth to life upon life for age upon age upon age without sin, death, suffering, sickness, uh, wickedness, all of those things. So I think there will be a perpetual labor and growth that will happen across the entire earth and all nations will be involved, all the Gentiles and all the Gentiles will bring their perpetual glory upon glory upon glory into the new Jerusalem, like Revelation 21. The administration of that eternal, everlasting glory will still be Israelocentric. It will still be to the Jew first and then the Gentile. For me, the older I get, the happier that makes me as a Gentile, because that means I don't have to be part of that <laughs> bureaucratic center, because it's an honor, but it's a lot of work, which Work will be joy in the age to come, but I I don't necessarily want to be part of it. <laughs> At the heart of Jewish election is what uh, I believe is birthright, or what is technically known as primogeniture. It's the official position of the administration of an inheritance. The birthright of Israel, the chosenness, revolves around this election to be the oldest son, the firstborn child among the nations of children of God. And that ultimately plays out in the age to come. And the oldest child, uh, usually male in most cultures, is the one that administrates the inheritance. In the West, we call it the, uh, the executor of a state. When my father passed away, I held the responsibility of primogeniture. I did hundreds of hours of work. Because my father was wicked, he he left us a train wreck to deal with. Uh, my little sister, she shared in the inheritance, but she wasn't jealous of me as the oldest child. I considered it an honor, but I just did a whole lot more work, and she shared in the inheritance. So us Gentiles, mm. we're going to share in the inheritance of the God of Israel, the father of all nations, but it's still going to be administrated to the Jew first, ultimately the king of the Jews, and then 12 Jewish thrones surrounding the king of the Jews. 
and then to the Gentiles, as Paul would say it, glory, honor, and immortality to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And so we as Gentiles are going to share in that inheritance, but I'm not jealous or envious. I'm glad of my position as a younger child within the overall picture of the Jews being the elder child. And I am not trying to push my way into the center of all that because it just means a lot more work. Right. And it, but that's an honor. <laughs> I, I, I acknowledge that honor and that choosing and that election, but I don't feel a need on my part. And I think, you know, maybe the glory that I'll receive in the age to come will be greater than the glory of some Jews that are centered in around Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean that I won't receive that greater glory at the hands of a Jew. Right. I don't cons- I don't think I'll have a greater glory. I, I'm I'm a peanut and a dork, but I'm just saying some Gentiles might receive a greater glory, but they're still going to receive that greater glory at the hands of, a, of Jews, if that makes sense. So the administration of the age to come happens from Jerusalem outward to the nations and the Gentiles. Our place is to rejoice at being included in that. Playing off of that a little bit, it's 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 really hard to separate a Gentile from the lap of Jesus eternally, but but I think the way the way the concentric <laughs> circles work, it really is the way the the kingdom of God is going to be administrated. I think we did three episodes in season one of our podcast on Acts fifteen, and one of them centered on the the phrase the unbearable burden that we are unable to carry, and why would we put that on them? And Mm. the issue at hand is not Torah observance, because there were four or five people in the New Testament alone who were blameless according to the Torah. The the issue at hand is Jewish election, because they're talking about circumcision, which in the first century didn't mean it wasn't a random mitzvot. In first century, circumcision meant to become a Jew. And so what they say is a burden that's been impossible for them to bear is the burden of election. So like John's saying, it's not, it's not a walk in the park to be, going back to your question, Steph, to be chosen. It's not like they, they sit around, you know, like Jewish history has just looked like a big group of privileged people in a, in a joyful sing-along, right? <laughs> it's a, uh, It's been so easy. It's been so easy for the Jews. <laughs> For the last 4,000 years, really. <laughs> like Josh pointed out in Genesis 12, from Genesis 12 on, it, it has been how God's chosen to administrate redemption, is by choosing that family. And it is the humble pie of the Gentile to acknowledge that. And in coming to the God of Israel, it's what happens. It, it, part of the way I read um, Zechariah 14, it's when they come and sabern- celebrate tabernacles in the world to come. I really think the purpose of it is to acknowledge Jewish election. It is going to be the humble pie that the Gentiles come and acknowledge that God chose this people. And if they don't, they won't get rain. It's what God has done. It's how this age has unfolded is God's going to vindicate the least in this age to be the greatest in the age to come. And it's going to be our joy in the world to come to acknowledge that. And so it is part of the way that we disciple Gentiles. And it, it is humble pie, but I think it's, uh, think it's important. Yeah, and I I think of like Romans 15 that that Josh talked about earlier, where Paul is encouraging Jewish and Gentile believers, and he presumes 
a, you know, like Mark Kinzer says, a bilateral ecclesiology that Jews and Gentiles walk out their salvation in fear and trembling in different ways. One in Torah observance, one in kind of, you know, proto-Noahide laws observance. Paul is talking about in Romans 14, don't antagonize each other or judge each other or be bitter towards each other and live in harmony. And then he concludes in Romans 15 to live in harmony with one another, verse seven, in accord in Christ Jesus to glorify God. And he says, for I tell you that the Messiah became servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so the Messiah became a servant to the Jews to confirm Jewish election, and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And that's when Paul prays that the God of hope may fill you Gentiles with all joy and peace in believing Jewish eschatology, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So it really does take the power of the Holy Spirit to make a Gentile rejoice in the hope of Israel. Yeah. Because it doesn't happen naturally. Yep. No. <laughs> and Good. it doesn't happen naturally that a Gentile accepts Jewish election, submits to it, and rejoices in it. But that's the point of discipleship is that right. you, yeah. that's what Paul is doing in Romans 11. He's saying, I don't want you to become conceited. I want you to submit and rejoice that even though Israel at the time is apostate in some ways, it doesn't mean that things have changed. It doesn't mean that the story has changed. It just means that God wants the fullness and the mercy to go to the Gentiles before the salvation of Israel. And therefore, you guys should submit to that and play into that. Yeah, no, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to, to I mean, I think it's powerful like uh, to, to embrace the idea that uh, we're not there in the middle. We don't have to be. We don't have to be the very center of uh, attention. We don't have to have the power in our hands, this discipline of submission and like you said, not being conceited. That's a powerful one for our time and place, I think. Yeah. And I'm just going to, I'm a, I'm super excited. I'm super excited to have a body that never dies. That's going to be really awesome. And that it does, it says, yes, when I want to walk in righteousness, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to live on a new earth. It doesn't really matter to me that I, that I'm not going to be based in Jerusalem or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I guess I don't have to start uh, uh, packing my clothes for a, a move to Israel. Um, well, as long and as fascinating as this conversation has been, we've really only revealed the tip of the iceberg here. You guys have delved into many, many more topics than we've had time to talk about today. Where can our listeners go if they want to binge listen to uh, all four seasons of the Apocalyptic Gospel podcast? Yeah, definitely. Well, we're streaming on pretty much every platform that's typical. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, etc. So just search for the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast. We also have a website, which is just apocalypticgospel.com. We've got a list of common resources uh, that we recommend on there as well. Uh, all of our episodes, you can find those there on the website as well. And then we're also on Twitter. 
Uh, and so we post occasionally little things on Twitter, episode uh, links on Twitter, but you can find us on Twitter at Apoc Gospel or just search for the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast on Twitter as well, and you should find us there. All right. For all of the spelling bee winners out there, try typing that URL without uh, <laughs> without looking in your dictionary. But a Google search will avail much, even if you don't know how to spell apocalyptic. Well, Josh, John, Bill, thank you so much for making time for us today and bringing the apocalyptic gospel podcast to Messiah podcast. This has been a really enlightening and fruitful um, conversation. I'm sure our listeners are all going to feel the same way. Mm, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having yeah, us. It's been this great. Fun. Thanks for having us. Well, that wraps it up for our extended conversation with the apocalyptic gospel guys. Jacob, how did you feel about it? I thought it was amazing. Um, Me too. It's easy to it's easy to forget that there's other people out there who who read the New Testament from a Jewish perspective. I wish we could get like all all of us in a room room together. But I mean, that even feeling that way uh, belies the feeling that uh, it it seems like we could all fit in one room together. <laughs> um, it's encouraging to know that that's probably not true, and that this this message is getting out mm -hmm. there. People are starting to get it, Stephanie. You know what? I think they really are. And I feel the same way. You know, being a Messianic Jew, you can sometimes feel a little bit isolated, a little bit lonely sometimes, yeah. even given the fact that we do have some really vibrant communities. But just in general, when speaking to other believers, you can feel a little bit out of the loop. And mm. But knowing that we have Christian allies that are going to bat for us in this way, it makes me feel like... I don't know. It makes me feel even more a part of the body. It gives me a sense of community and camaraderie with these with these people. So I've been really encouraged by these conversations. I'm glad to hear that. Me too. Thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at FFOZ.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Stephanie Hammond. And I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom, friends. Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea